Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Buckle up for an unfiltered dose of comedy. Full disclosure, I've had a lot of sex, but honestly, having sex with me is like buying a Prius. It's much quieter than you'd expect. Epics presents Unprotected Sets. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Buckle up for an unfiltered dose of comedy. Full disclosure, I've had a lot of sex, but honestly, having sex with me is like buying a Prius. It's much quieter than you'd expect. Epics presents Unprotected Sets. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. do y'all i'm uncle drank star of the ballad of uncle drank it is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me fictional golf and western country music pioneer uncle drank the series also stars luke wilson brian kelly chelsea lynn kinky friedman and billy zane as a talking blender named blendy you can find the ballad of uncle drank on sirius xm pandora stitcher or wherever you get your podcast this is lips la Hey guys, welcome to the show. We are back. And today on the show, the OG YouTuber, one of the best and greatest and most uh, creative people in the space, Casey Neistat is on the show. Very excited. Casey is an American YouTube personality, filmmaker, vlogger, and co-founder of the multimedia company Bayme, which was later acquired by CNN. He also founded 368, a creative space for creators to collaborate he won GQ's New Media Star Award. Um, he's given TED Talks. He is the epitome of the OG YouTuber creator. This guy, when you mention his name to anyone in that space, they're like, he's the guy that started it all. So super excited to have Casey Neistat on the show today. Lip service. The show is coming to you live from WeWork. And the show is brought to you by At Thursday's Boots. Thursday's Boots, as you know, are my favorite boots. I wear them all the time. They are the best boots around. Check out Thursday's Boots. We'll talk a little bit more about them at the end of the show. And coming up in just a moment, Casey Neistat. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Scott Lips. Hey guys, welcome to the show. We are back. Lip service with the one and only Casey Neistat. Casey, how are you, my brother? Happy to be here. Happy to have you. I gave you an amazing intro before you got here. So behind the scenes magic, which you know a lot about um, way before you got here. So we talked about the fact of your whole history within a nutshell. American YouTube personality, filmmaker, vlogger. You started Beamy, you sold it to CNN, and obviously you have your new uh, 
venture now that you're doing. And obviously, also something I really want to talk about, a few years ago, you got voted the GQ's New Media Star Award, which is incredible. And you were like the OG video creator that kind of started this genre. You kind of, I, would, I want to say you started vlogging, did you not? You know, there's some nuance there, but there were definitely vloggers that were out there before me. You know, there were guys like um, Louis Cole, who's great great vlogger, Ben Brown, these guys who documented every day of their lives. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, stylistically, they would kind of, it was really just about sharing their lives. And I, I love that. And I saw the audiences engaging with that. And I thought, why not sort of not just share my life, but share the ideas and perspectives that I have and make it feel more like a show than make it feel like a, a, a diary. Um, so I definitely think I, I built on something that someone else, someone else started um, but so you took it to like another level. Yeah, if you say so, Scott. <laughs> yeah. Well, truth is we have a lot of mutual friends from Tom Sachs to Sean A. Reed or whoever. I kind of want to take it back to the beginning. We've known each other casually for a while, but I didn't know your whole entire history until I researched you quite a lot. So I want to take it back to the beginning. You grew up like a nice Jewish boy like me in Connecticut, although you dropped out of uh, school at the age of 17? 15. 15. Amazing. And you had your first child at 17. Yeah. Although, you know, I don't know. I did grow up a Jewish boy, but I wasn't very nice. Okay, well, not, not <laughs> such a nice Jewish boy. I don't know how far back you want to go, Scott. <laughs> well, but no, I, uh, you were you're a deviant kid, I guess, right? Yeah, it was like it was a, it was a, the first fifteen years were were pretty tumultuous. Okay, um, you know, is like, that because you grew up in a uh, like a broken family? Yeah, or? I think that it was. Um, I had great parents, but I think that it was. I was one of four kids. We never had much money, so there was a lot of like. Um, it was like uh, Lord of the Flies in my house when I grew up as a kid. And I think that looking back at like that puts You grew up in Connecticut, right? Yeah, I grew up in southeastern Connecticut. Yeah. So Nice town. What part are you from? I'm from Long Island, so that's why I say okay, the nice okay. The okay, five towns. It's it. very <laughs> upper echelon. It's like Beverly Hills on Long Island. So yeah, I, I grew up from like the, the shitty part of Connecticut. <laughs> okay. like, you don't you, think about Connecticut having a shitty park. No. You think about and, it being Keith Richards lives there. That's right. That's it's right. not really what people think about when they think of shitty. They don't think about Connecticut. No, not, that's why I always draw that distinction because, you know, Connecticut just over the, the New York border, it's where all the rich people live to avoid those New York taxes. Exactly. Um, I live on the furthest end of the state from there. So I live right near the Rhode Island border. What's interesting is that you dropped out of school at 15 and became immensely successful. You had your first child at 17. So what is that saying about school? Um, <laughs> Does it matter? You know, I, know. I, I think that I think that you have to find a fit in life, and I think that my fit definitely was not sort of like the um, southeastern Connecticut public school system that I was sort of that that I tried and ultimately failed in. Yeah, because I'll, it's funny. You grew up. You actually from like seventeen to twenty, you lived in a trailer park, and your story is incredible. Because who would have thought? It's sort of a real-life rags-to-riches story, right, how it started and how you— I mean, give me, can it take me back to how you started and how this whole thing started with your brother and the fact that you actually were, like, washing dishes and yeah. doing kind of a, a grunt work from 17 to 20 in a trailer park and to now where you've had your own businesses, you've sold them, you're on TV shows, you're doing documentaries now. You're, you're one of the innovators in this space on YouTube and beyond, you know, content creators, like one of the OGs I was— referring to you as today on the other podcast. Yeah, you know, I think that I think that I was very fortunate to have such a colorful past. Um, that's to say, not to say it's without trial and, you know, real struggles and, like, there's no shittier feeling in the world than not having a place to sleep at night with your kid, and I definitely experienced that uh, um, 
for many, many years of my life. But um, I, I draw so much from my past and the struggles that I've had to influence what I'm doing now that I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't change a thing. But yeah, so I, I kind of ran away from home when I was 15 years old. My parents were splitting up. It was really fucked up at home. And then, um, were you homeless or were you just going? Friends I was like, friends you know, when you're or? when you're 15, I was like, a, I was a sophomore in high school then. So you just kind of like stayed at friends' houses till their parents were like, "Why is that kid? Doesn't he have a home of his <laughs> right. own? He and can't then, stay here more than a week." <laughs> that, it's a, I think three days is the longest I stayed at any one friend's house. Wow. Um, and then I met these two girls that were super cool. They were like 19. I was 15. They had their own apartment, which is like about as chic as it comes at that age. And I moved in with them, and uh, yeah, then kind of immediately got one of the two of them pregnant. That story in itself is just crazy. You're 15, and you like meet these two girls, and you move in with them. Weren't they like, what? Don't you have a house? Like, were you? What about no, your I mean, they were like, I mean, they were they were cool. I knew them from before. It was like where we'd go after after high school to like smoke pot and drink natty ice. Was like <laughs> their apartment was like the cool because they just graduated high school, so a lot of their friends were still in high school, and I was definitely probably the youngest of the hoodlums that hung out with them but this was like the cool flop house to go hang out at after high school was anybody like why is this 15 year old kid living with you you're 19 or everybody was like no because they were they were kids too i mean one of the girls is a waitress the other one was like working at the casino or something like that and and like we all hung out there it's where we went to party all the time because they were just like i remember they had a cigarette dispenser in their apartment and I thought that was like the coolest fucking thing I've ever seen. And this is pre sort of YouTube and whatever was happening yeah, this in that is, video space. So were you into where technology was going? Had you always been into no, technology? It, it was not it was not part of the conversation and I don't mean my conversation. I mean it wasn't part of the it wasn't just something people were conscious of then. I mean this is like I'm 38 years old now so this is we're talking 1997-ish and um, MySpace was it a MySpace? No, oh. this was like five. That was years before oh, okay. MySpace. Years Friendster? before Friends. No, Friendster. Yeah. I want to say it was two thousand two, two thousand three. Oh, remember the timeline. There. This was like Netscape Navigator, uh, fucking dial-up, AOL, free <laughs> right. CDs at the grocery store. <laughs> right. You know, like that's yeah, that was then. So no, the idea of the idea of anything that was like internet focused or any of that wasn't there. But you know, I wanted to be for what it's worth. Even at that age, I wanted to be a movie director. That just meant something very different then. And who were you looking up to? Was it Scorsese? I mean, who were the directors that you were sort of inspired by at that young age? I mean, I I loved Scorsese. I loved, like, the greats. I loved Spielberg. I loved those guys. Um, but I was most turned on by, like, the Spike Jones and the Michelle Gondrys. Cool. And this is, like, you know, the first time you saw a Sabotage music video by the Beastie Boys. Yeah. It, like, that, was, that, that was Michelle Gondry, right? No, that yeah. was uh, Spike Jones. Oh, Spike Jones, Spike right, Jones. right, right. Your right. fucking head just exploded. Yeah. So you were always into sort of the indie, cool, cool kid aesthetic growing up. More, I mean, obviously you like the blockbuster directors, but you really took to the indie aesthetic. Like, because Michelle Gondry was so specific, he ended up doing like Radiohead videos. Yeah, yeah. And Eternal, what was it? Eternal Spot. Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Right, Great amazing movie. movie. Um, so, and then at a certain point, you kind of, you met Tom Sachs, right? Or am I jumping ahead you're too jump, far? You're jumping I'm ahead. You're out. jumping ahead and you're jumping about 150 miles west. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, so, uh, so walk me through where, yeah, where you, you're, you're with these girls, you're 15. Sure. And then what happened from there on in? So one, yeah. Pre- I mean, if you want to know, yeah. <laughs> know all the <laughs> We actually left southeastern Connecticut, she and I. Um, she had kind of had a little bit of a breakup with her, the girl that she lived with. And we went, we moved to Virginia, where I uh, got into high school there by having my older brother adopt me. 
You're not allowed to be in a public school unless you have a legal guardian. Mm. How old is your older brother? So he's five years older than me. Okay. So he was like 20. 20, he was, right. He was, a, he was in college there. Okay. And uh, he adopted me, so I go to public school there, which is amazing. Amazing. Really exciting. But ultimately, we moved back to Connecticut. She had the, we had the baby. And we, you know, we just kind of, we lived in an apartment that was, I think, $425 a month. It was a real shithole. It was in kind of a sketch neighborhood. Until... And you were like washing dishes. Yeah. I, I, all I'd ever done then was, I think by the time uh, baby Owen was born, um, I had had my fourth job in a restaurant. My dad, like, worked in restaurants, uh-huh. so I... That's all I knew. Were you sort of like, how am I going to make ends meet? I'm 17. I'm working no. in a restaurant. No. No. None, none of, that, of that. You didn't ever. even think. You just sort of forged forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was way more positive than that. Like, it wasn't, I think it sounds like a pretty bleak scenario. And if somebody were to tell it to me now and I had to look at it, somebody else going through it, I'd feel bad for them. But looking back on it, there was always kind of a confidence, you know, like um, right when the baby was born, like, we had to get, we were on welfare for a minute wow. and we got free diapers and free milk from the state and that felt fine. And then like, um, I got paid eight bucks an hour. So it was, um, it ended up being $320 a week after taxes. I was taking home $292 a week, like remember vividly. And, uh, yeah, you just f- fucking make it happen. And it didn't like, I was a kid, so I don't think I knew to feel bad for myself or I, did, I didn't think I knew that it was irresponsible to live like that. Like, we had everything we needed. And Interesting enough, I just saw a video that you did, maybe it came out a little while ago, about the differences of people having money, being poor versus being rich. And, and you're the sort of the synopsis of the video is like, it does help, right? If you have money for people that say it doesn't change anything, it's kind of bullshit. At the end of the day, like, if you have money, you can afford to do the things you want to do. You can travel, your bills are, you know, you have to think about your rent. You know, you made this kind of pie chart thing and you went through everything. And ultimately, now for you, I imagine things are much different, right? You don't have to struggle. So how yeah, I mean, I, the the sort of the 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 thesis of that video is just that if you if you everybody has problems, and if you have money, um, if you're fortunate enough to have money in this world, um, you still have problems. You still have relationship problems, personal problems, mental health problems, physical problems. You have emotional problems. You you every day is you know every day you fight. Every day you, we all have problems that we have to confront, um, and those problems are myriad if you have money. But if you're broke, those problems are singular. Right, true. And, and that problem is not having money. So, but you didn't really look at this as a challenge. You just made it work. Yeah, I don't know that I was that sophisticated then. You know, I was still very young. I had very little exposure to the world outside of this small town that I was from. Um, I didn't quite understand what was out there, what was possible. And then the inverse of that. I didn't understand that, like... It, it wasn't that out of the ordinary to be a teenage parent who was on welfare in that town. Mm. Like I wasn't a, I wasn't an outlier or an exception. I was just kind of like one of those people. It was a common thing or almost common. I guess. Yeah. I mean, like, I, look, I went to like a, a night school to try to finish high school, which didn't really work out. Um, so you don't even have a degree. No, no GED. Yeah. Um, I have a, no, yeah, nothing. Um, but I remember being at that night school, like there was a bunch of people who were in very similar situations to me who had to leave high school as a teenager for one reason or another. And their main motive was that they had to earn money for their family. Right. And so they're going to night school to try to get their GED. And that's who I was surrounded with. And yeah. if that's all you know, then it doesn't feel as horrible as, as in retrospectively, it, it, I know that it, 
it is or could have could have been much worse. And by living, well, you live. You weren't living with your brother. You were living with this. Uh, yeah, so I live time, with. So. You can call her my baby mama. Yeah. I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah. But we <laughs> we left that shitty apartment, and I I bought a trailer for twelve thousand dollars. So this is like seventeen to twenty. You're living in a trailer. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, I think uh-huh. it was like eighteen to twenty. Yeah, uh-huh. but um, I think I had to put like. 800 bucks down or 1200 bucks down and then my mortgage was like $200 and then you had to pay for the plot of land that you parked your trailer on. Wow. But at the end of the day like month over month it was like I was it was a really low payment and I had a I had an asset which was this trailer and I really liked it. What was your payment per month? Like I mean it was it was I think around $400 all okay. in. Um but I liked it. I was like really happy there. It was in like a good location and my kid was happy, and I could walk to my dishwashing job from there, which was, like, really important because we didn't really have a car. The car was always broken. So to know that I could make it to work every day was a big deal. And, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a bad life. It wasn't. It's um, something to be said about simplifying your life. I think Matthew McConaughey actually lives in a trailer park in Malibu. I'm sure it's not the same <laughs> as the trailer park that you're in, but, and I'm sure he has many other houses. But... You know, some people sometimes just want to simplify things and, and bring it back to the basics. But at that point, did you start to, you know, think, hey, maybe something with my brother could make sense because, you know, he sponsored me and he, he was sort of my legal guardian. So maybe I can figure something out with him. Were you guys both starting to brainstorm about, like, where the world was going and what you might be able to do together? It, it, it wasn't that deliberate. Yeah. Um, it was accidental almost, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, my my big brother, Van, you know, he never, he didn't have anything either. And he actually had to... When he was in Virginia and I chased him down there, he was going to college at, the, uh, at William & Mary. Um, but he ultimately had to leave William & Mary because my parents couldn't afford tuition. Um, so he left school and he moved to Brooklyn. And when he was living in New York, I was in that trailer park and I went in to visit him. And he had just bought um, an iMac TV, like the first ever computer for yeah. consumers that you could edit video on. It was the first product that Steve Jobs shipped when he rejoined Apple. And he showed me how you could edit video on that. And the funny thing is he didn't have a camera. Um, I had a camera. He had a computer. So we went out and filmed and we would edit it on his computer. And it was such like an exciting, liberating thing that like that very moment, I was like, fuck this. Like this is what I have to figure out. And I remember like when I got back to my trailer park later that week after my trip to New York City with my kid was over, um, I applied for a credit card so I could buy that iMac. And the most credit I get was 400 bucks. Wow. The, but the iMac was 1200 So I got f- three or four credit cards and then had to get my tax return and max out all the cards and use my whole I total tax return, and I got a, a hot pink iMac TV in 1998. And then, is that the one that was kind of shaped like a dome? Yeah, it was like shaped right. like a... Yeah, yeah, I always I say it's that. kind of shaped yeah. like a toilet, but right. a great product. Yeah. But all I did then was, you know, like my um, Owen's mother and my baby mama, like she worked days, I worked nights. So all day long I was home alone with the kid and all we did was make videos. That's it. Amazing. And at what point, because I mean, one of your biggest breakthroughs, and maybe you'd have to tell me, but I feel it's like iPod's dirty little secret that you did with your brother, right? And this is a video. Mike, that's also an interesting question too, right? You must have been observing life around you and saying to yourself, you know, I feel like I need to do some social justice to things that I see wrong in the world. Because a lot of your videos, truth be told, whether it's that, where you sort of expose the fact that the iPod battery only lasted a year and a half. And that was your first breakthrough video that you did, right? Kind of more or less? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I mean, to say like a social, that sounds so um, magnanimous. It was just mostly, it was just like a 
really fucking pissed off, so I made a video about it. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, when Owen's mom and I broke up, I just kind of flipped out, and I moved to New York City with like a couple hundred dollars, and I had a, I think I had a 10-week sublet in the East Village, and my brother Van was already living there, and I moved there, and that's when he and I just started making videos together. And, you know, I was like an artist assistant. I think I was getting paid $10 an hour. And then all day and all night, when Van and I weren't working, we were making videos. And iPod's Dirty Secret, which was 2003, so still three years before YouTube came out, um, was the first video that just exploded. Like, we put that on a splash page, and it was seen by five or six million, had five or six million views. Um, and how did it even go viral because there wasn't YouTube? I mean, and, and I guess there God, wasn't. God, you a, remember. You remember. Do, but, um, you used to have to like take the URL, <laughs> yeah. shift, like control C, yeah. copy that, start an email, and then type out all your friends' email addresses. So you did it by sort of gorilla. You sent out an email to all your friends. Is that how it kind I'm, of started? Yeah, I mean, like I carpet. Once we made that movie, I carpet bombed like every website that talked about Apple I could think of. And I was like, hey, check out this movie. And, and they ended up picking it up. Yeah, it was like something interesting to write about, and it was kind of a funny movie, and like I don't think anybody would care about it if I made that today, but back then, like those sorts of little internet, quippy, funny, yeah, kind of pranky videos, like nobody had seen things like that online, like really before, especially one that was so pointed. So to explain what you did, you actually took like spray paint, and you went to all these Apple sort of, not billboards, but like... The pasted, um, yeah, what was it called so again? It was, the, the street pasting thing yeah, that they do? The, uh, wheat, wheat pasting. The wheat pasting, <laughs> right. So you went all the wheat pastings all over New York that had the iPod sort of advertising, and you put over that these batteries only last 18 months or something. Yeah, like that, right? I mean, it was, um, you know, I had like the first gen iPad, and it was a gift. It was like my prized possession because they were 400 bucks. I couldn't afford that fucking thing. Yeah. Um, but the battery did die. And when I called Apple, they were just like, our policy is to tell you to buy a new iPod instead of replace. And I was so frustrated. So I called back and I recorded the call. And then we used that recording of them saying we don't replace the batteries as sort of the sound bed for the video. And the video was, yeah, my brother and me running around downtown Manhattan. And this is when those, um, like, brightly colored silhouette dancing individuals. Exactly, like, yeah. Those things were fucking everywhere, everywhere. everywhere. man. They were ever. <laughs> so we put like, um, if you could, if you imagine like the pack of, a pack of cigarettes has that disclaimer at the bottom that says, hey, this will give you cancer. We put those disclaimers on every poster we could find. It said iPods, unreplaceable battery lasts only 18 months. And coincidence or not, they ended up changing their policy after 6 million views and somebody took notice of it. Or they're like, well, actually, we were planning on doing that anyway. Were they? I don't know. I, feel yeah, like, I mean, I, you know, I know, the world will never know, but it happened, um, it happened like within days. Yeah. And I had a personal email with Steve Jobs. I was going to ask you if you it. ever met him. So you, he emailed you? Um, no, I emailed him. How'd you get his email address? Because it's just like sjobs at apple.com. You just thought about it. No, it was, like it's, it was like a like a publicly known thing. Oh, okay. But, you know, he just didn't respond to it. So I sent him one, and I was kind of a dick about it. You know, I was much younger and much more kind of big-headed then, but I was like, I think I sent an email that was like, hey, can you explain that this is the case? If not, so I don't know. I said something that was like a little snarky, and he responded right back. Wow. And That's, he was like, he was, he was super defiant. <laughs> what did he say? I, you know, I don't remember, but I just remember him being defiant. He was like, listen, defiant. punk. It, was something, it wasn't quite so um, 
condescending, but it was something like, no, I stand by what we're doing or I stand by how we did it or something like that. That was it. It was like, it was like one line. Hey, like Casey, five, it, well, there was no, Hey, Casey. No, okay. he, like, I never, <laughs> he never, he never typed out the letter C-A-S-E-Y in a fucking way. In my dreams, he typed right. that out. But no, he's a hero of mine. Yeah. And still pretty amazing, right? Yeah. Well, I, the irony of it is, is that I credit Apple, um, with really like motivating the whole career. If they, yeah. if they didn't have the insight to, to come up with this crazy idea that consumers wanted to edit video in 1998, I don't think I ever would have discovered filmmaking the way that I had. So you and your brother start making these films. Some go viral, right? And yeah. at that point, were you like, this is definitely my path? And at what point did you start making money with it? Um, well, the, the two questions there, so let me unpack that a little bit. I, I always knew it was like my mission. Like, even when I was washing dishes, I was like, no, 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 I'm a dishwasher now, but I'm going to be a filmmaker. Yeah. And, like, the waitresses would roll their eyes at me. Like, that's cute. Keep going, kid. That's cute, Casey. Yeah, back, <laughs> back to the kitchen. Um, so, you know, like, when I got the iMac, I was like, okay, no, this is just a tool I need to realize this career. When I moved to New York City, I was like, okay, no, I just have to be an assistant because I need to keep the lights on so I can make videos. So it was, it was always, there was always a real conviction there behind making. Um and then, yeah, Van and I just, we cranked out so much stuff and we started making money any way we could. So it was like doing bar mitzvah videos or birthday videos, things like that, like anything we could get a paycheck for. Um, and then we made a series that we called Science Experiments and we showed it in art galleries. So there's no outlet, there's no YouTube. You couldn't right. put three minute videos anywhere. So Did we you put, have a website? Did you we, had a, website? we had a website, maybe that was a little later, but we had a website. And, but mostly like we considered our work video art and um, so long as people bought that bullshit, we're like, great, yeah, yeah, sure, it's art, yeah, whatever you want to call it. Um, we'll sell it to you. Yeah, I mean, it was less about convincing people to buy it and more just like we need an outlet for it. Yeah. And there was, it didn't belong in a movie theater. We couldn't submit it to film festivals, but the art world was like, yeah, this is art. And we're like, okay, great, yeah, it's art. What you said, <laughs> sure. As long as people get to see it. Yeah. Um, it was just about getting it in front of eyeballs. Um, so, you know, there were some wins, like I, I remember getting paid $5,000 to make a birthday video and it probably cost us $4,000 to make the video, but like, right. that was a huge deal. That was huge. Five grand is fucking insane. Um, and you probably knew, obviously after the, the video you did on, you know, the iPod's third little secrets that something was, something was, you know, gaining some traction, right? Cause you don't get 6 million views unless you're doing something right. And so people were tuning in to, people were probably like, I wonder what those guys have up their sleeves next. Yeah, um, sure. And But look, by the time we made that movie, we had, you know, we'd made like 50 other little short movies right. that weren't as, um, maybe didn't capture the zeitgeist the same kind of way, but we made 50 little movies that were all good. Um, so yeah, there was always a lot to show people. And there was always a confidence behind that. Like I never was like, oh, wow, people like this. Maybe we've got something like that that kind of revelation never occurred. It was always, there was always such a confidence or arrogance there that I don't know where that came from. Um, that like, no, I know this is good. Like I know that I, what I'm making, I'm working so hard on this. How could somebody not like this? Right. And truth be told, like a lot of that stuff I made back then was not good. It was yeah. terrible. <laughs> but as like a 22 year old, like 10th grade educated kid, like hustling in New York City, like living in Chinatown, just doing whatever I could to make videos. Like it was, um, it was very motivating. It was it was very um, it was uh, it was just sort of an endless, constant desire to just make, 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 make. Looking back on it now, are there videos that you made back then that you're like, this is really good? Um, I I think they're all kind of good. I mean, I think that like 
I, I certainly appreciate some of what we did back then um, in ways that I don't appreciate it now. Um, There's some stuff we did back then that I think is, is actually like really smart. And I think then we just thought it was something silly or goofy. Um, science experiments, for example, is like a series we just made. We just couldn't afford actors or sets or even couldn't afford the DV tape. So we just shot it in my bedroom. And it was just all on tabletop. And it was like, and this is true, by the way, Scott, yeah. if you want to go home and try this. Yeah, but yeah. if you take mothballs and okay. you sand them down with sandpaper and then you put them into a jar of vinegar, they collect bubbles at the bottom, rise to the top, bubbles pop, and they drop to the bottom. So oh. it looks like a bunch of ping pong balls going up and down. Okay, we made a movie about that. <laughs> Pretty amazing. And it, it was, was like that show Bill Nye's like before. It was sure, but it was all <laughs> shot macro, yeah. super close up. And it was like, and again, like somebody else t- called that art. Like yeah. we, we didn't put the label of art on that because that's ridiculous. Yeah. But looking back at it now, I think if I met a 20-year-old kid who was making videos that were like beautiful and thoughtful and accessible. And I remember like every time we were in an art show, I didn't care about any of the visitors or any of the galleries. I didn't care what any of them thought. I just wanted to see what like the, the art handlers, the guys who carry the canvases, because they don't give a shit about the art. Like, <laughs> like uh, what are the, they what, think? What are the construction workers <laughs> that are like building out this space? What do yeah. they think? Yeah, what and did they think? They liked it. Yeah. Yeah, I remember we were at the Sao Paulo Biennial in, in Brazil, which was kind of the peak of the art, my exposure to the art world. We had our movies playing there. And they were being played on like a 40-foot screen in, in like a, a gigantic hallway in this museum. And so many people gathered to watch them that it made it impassable. Mm. And to me, that was like the ultimate. Yeah, that was the ultimate, yeah. And at a certain point, you keep doing this, and then HBO sort of approaches you and your brother, right? I, I don't know what the timeline is there, but I... Yeah, you're I not know. far off. That was like, so the, you know, like the iPod's Dirty Secrets 2003, the art stuff was around the same time. And then... Um, HBO never approached us. It was, uh, we'd made some content. We'd met this tremendous individual, a guy who um, I still to this day consider a mentor. His name's Tom Scott. And he was an entrepreneur, and he had built and sold, um, you know that company, uh, Nantucket Nectars, so like Snapple? Yeah, yeah, of course. He built and sold that company, Amazing. very, very young. Yeah. Um, made a shitload of money and then started another media company. He was doing really well with it, and we met him. We did a little project for his media company. He loved it, and he's like, let's do something big together. So my brother Van and I were like, okay, well, look, if you can just bankroll us for a year, we'll make like an insane amount of little videos and we'll do something with them. And the pitch was about as nebulous as that. Like there was no specificity. <laughs> there was here. no uh, projection. No, I no... still have the math <laughs> equation when he was like, what do you need? And it was like $25,000 a month times 12 months. And I like wrote that out. And then there was like, <laughs> carry the one. There was like the number. And he was like, yeah, sure. I guess that's fine. Let's do it. I mean, and, how do you? I, that never happens to me. But I mean, I always have to do like projections and business plans and whatever. I, I think it it's that was not stemmed from our confidence, but just yeah. stemmed entirely from our naivety. Like we had not had any real. We'd figured out how to make money here and there, just picking up the camera for anybody who'd pay us. But we hadn't um, formalized anything we'd done. And then with that, what we were doing with him, we were just we just started making little videos as aggressively as we could, and we didn't have to worry about paying rent, so we could afford to do it. And um, ultimately, he brought this woman named Christine Vachon by. Christine Vachon is an absolutely tremendously talented movie producer um, who's been who had a wildly successful career, and she saw it and she's like, "You guys have something here. Make these twenty five minutes long. Make these twenty two minutes long." Mm. So we started linking all the little videos together, and she's like, "You've got a show. This is a TV show. Let's go sell this." And we, I remember, we flew out to LA. We pitched everybody in New York. Nobody cared. Pitched everybody in LA. Nobody cared. Mm-hmm. We tried to get a meeting with uh, 
HBO. Um, they didn't really care. So Christine had to lean into it. And she's like, okay, I know people over there. I know Carolyn Strauss, who was the, I think. So the, you were trying to get the meetings by yourself or did she I mean, we, take we had, lead? we had Tom, our producer and Christine came on as a producer. So we had like some muscle. Yeah. It wasn't just two dopes with a video camera But anymore. did they expect you to go out and kind of get the meetings yourself? No, no, no. Mm. They were super, they were hand in hand with us. It was just the, there was a, like, people didn't know what it was and what it effectively was. It was like, it, it was a vlog. It was a personal YouTube <laughs> right, vlog, right, right. but we made it in 2008 and we were trying to sell it as a TV show. And ultimately HBO saw it and they're like, we really like this. And they bought the show from us. And then where did it go from there? So they aired the show. So they aired the show. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's complicated and not that interesting, but the truth is Carolyn Strauss, who was the head of programming then, she's the woman who like, you know, Sex in the City, um, like, yeah, I mean, you know, all, all those like big, yeah. amazing six feet under yeah. the Sopranos, yeah, like yeah. This, the wire, this Biggest. huge fuck. Did that, she like it? That was her. Yeah, she was the one who bought it. Amazing. And then she was fired the next day. Um, just changing, you know, changing of the guard. A lot was happening within HBO. I don't know a lot of the intimacies of why she left or was pushed out or however it worked but it left us in a really uncertain position and then the new woman who came in was really smart and talented but she had a different direction for the company so our show got shelved and it didn't air for two years and when it did air they they programmed it on Friday nights at midnight I think which, I read that somewhere yeah which is a tough time fuck, who watches <laughs> TV like, Friday nights at midnight right. um yeah, so that was really painful. And it was even more painful. It was really, it was well-reviewed. People yeah. really liked it. Um, so how long was it on for? You know, I, don't, I mean, the show was eight episodes. So right, it was so they eight aired episodes. all the, yeah, yeah, they aired it all, and then they yeah. ran it for a while. Yeah. But um, Can you still find it? You can find ripped copies of it. I mean, we own it. Maybe we should think about selling it again. But yeah. we own it. We could do something with it. But um, yeah, it, people can see it now. But I think the most interesting part of it, looking in, in retrospect, is just... All it was is YouTube videos. Yeah. It was just before anybody. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's why I, when I called you like an innovator in the space, because you were kind of vlogging years before that became a thing and it turned into a TV show, but it wasn't called that. It was called something else. It was called a TV show. Yeah. So. And look, I think it's like, I think it's a natural place to land. Like yeah. you don't know how to make films. You've got no formal training. So you have to f figure it out yourself. And you do it by, you've got a camera. Okay. Like how do you give context to what's going on? Let me just talk into the lens. Okay, well, let me show it. So you turn the camera around, and then you sort of build it out from there, and that's what vlogging or YouTubing has become. But at the time, I think that I think that we were just early, and I think that if we hadn't done it, then somebody else would have would have figured it out. Because I don't think there was anything particularly genius or insightful. It was just brute force. Timing. It was timing lab too. And a lot of your videos you refer to as like public service announcement case. So it's funny, right? I feel like. My, one of my favorite videos you've done, which went viral to 25 million views, is you in the bike lane. I yeah, watched, that was a big I rewatched it this morning. So it's basically, you know, a cop gives you a ticket because you're not riding in the bike lane, and then you actually go out of your way to crash into, like, every obstacle that's in the bike lane in New York, which, by the way, you must have gotten hurt in that video. I'm I, an you were, like, crashing into, excellent like, stunt man. You were literally, I guess you were doing your own stunts because it didn't look like there was a stand-in. Um, pretty amazing. I mean, did you get hurt, by the way, or no? No, not no. at all. I mean, so that movie, like, that movie probably cost, like, 50 bucks to make. I made it with my, my friend Oscar. And uh, no, it's just a little shitty point-and-shoot camera. But, you know, the premise was like I got ticketed for not being in the bike lane, which is outrageous because you can't safely ride in the bike lane in New York City. Right. I'm from New York, so I yeah. know. There's always shit in the There's way. There's always <laughs> shit in the way. There's like people parking in the way. They yeah. put up cones. So the video is just meant to illustrate that. But it was done in a very slapstick kind of way where I just rode my bike full speed into whatever obstructions lay in my way. And yeah, that video 
that exploded. Yeah, that was because that, that, that was YouTube native. Yeah, um, that did like five million in the first week, which now is not a big deal. But in 2010 or whenever I dropped huge. that, 2012 was huge. Yeah, really and where, did the, where did the sort of inspiration come from? And where I guess still to this day to do all these things, right? Is it that you kind of see, you know what? I need to talk about this. Needs needs to be addressed, or as you kind of mentioned, it's a public service announcement. Are these things that you consciously think, you know, no one is fucking talking about this. I need to sort of address this in life, or um, or is it just something that when you're in your daily life, you going through life, you're like, oh, this is kind of funny, so I should really play upon this. No, it, it's it's far less virtuous than that, Scott. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> no, it's just like I, I just I mean to be honest, like if I had to, if if you're my therapist and I'm breaking it down, it's like I've got. Three, I'm one of four kids, and I'm like the forgotten middle child. So yeah. in order to like be heard, I had to really scream. Mm. And so once I had a camera, it was sort of like having a microphone. And like I, I genuinely thought it was bullshit to get a ticket for not riding in the bike lane. Yeah. I genuinely thought it was bullshit for your iPod to not be able to change the battery out. Um, so, so it's, it's just, more simplistic than that. It's not it's, really it's like... It's way more. Yeah. yeah, it's way less than... There's, there's a lot less insight than, I mean, you know, people say really nice things and say how smart it was to make that. It's like, well, I appreciate that. But the truth is, I was just really frustrated. But sometimes the simplest things make, you know, the most interesting things, right? I I think there was a relatability to that. I think everybody's at one point in time, whether it is a ticket from a police officer or it's like, you can't get your fucking Verizon bill refunded the $12 they overcharge you and you don't know how to make noise about it. Like everybody's experienced some degree of frustration in life. And for me, videos became sort of an outlet not just for my frustrations in the videos we've talked about, but like, you know, the HBO show was about relationships and was about love and my relationship with my son, parenthood, and all of these things that matter to me. So I just would make a video about them. And, um, you know, bike lanes and an iPod fall into that category of things that matter to me. And at a certain point, YouTube starts kicking off, right? Because you talked about that being one of the first videos that really sort of that you did that was on YouTube, right? And so... Was it sort of one of those things for you where you, you know, because eventually like advertising came into play for what you were doing. You got advertisers on board. And again, one of my favorite other videos that you did was the stuff you did for Nike and sort of how you traveled around the globe. And what was it, 10 days until you ran out of money, I believe? Yeah. Um, um, make it count. Make it count, exactly. Movie. So at what point did sort of advertisers start, you know, looking at what you're doing, Case, and, and say, hey, you know what, we're going to give you some money because this is definitely, you could take what you're doing and basically, you know, advertise for us, but in a non-traditional way. Um, yeah, so that was a process. Like, I wish that had been like a switch that had been flipped, but it was really a process. So, you know, between HBO and YouTube, there was, you know, from 2008 to kind of 2012, 2013, I primarily made a living by directing TV commercials in a really traditional capacity, you know, showing up for a 30 second shoot. You've got storyboards, you've got scripts, you've got, um, a client on set, you've got a tent city where they're monitoring everything you're doing. And I was able to do that because of the videos I was putting online. Because yeah, of did you like that? Show. I hated it. You hated it. Okay. Um, it, it no, it's not a very creatively liberating process, at yeah. least for me. Yeah. Um, and I felt very restricted doing that. It was exciting, to be honest. That it was exciting to get paid. Yeah. But it wasn't a, a particularly liberating thing. And then um, it was Nike that actually sort of gave me my first opportunity. Long before that big campaign with Make It Count, we did a little something. There was a tiny budget, a couple grand. And I made a movie about bikes in New York City, and they loved it. And they're like, something bigger together. And it ultimately manifested as like a, a three-video project. And one of those three videos was Make It Count, which really like, that movie really kind of like did wonderful things for my career because it 
it highlighted sort of an ability to work with brands and find aligned interests. Um, my interests of getting out there and living life were aligned with Nikes of just do it in a way that... Um, and talk about, yeah, talk about it a little bit because I watched the video. Actually, I had never seen it before, to be honest with you. I mean, there's a million, pe- what, 25 million people saw it or 20 million. How many people saw it? I don't know the number on that Like one. some crazy amount of people. But I never saw it. So it was pretty incredible to me. You're like, you know, the pyramids, you're uh, in yeah, Thailand. So the, so the, you're like, the premise of the video, and this is entirely true, um, was Nike had given me the budget ahead of time. And I was supposed to make a somewhat traditional internet video for them. It was supposed to be a commercial for their fuel band product. And at the ninth hour, I was just like, fuck this. Like, I, I don't want to make that video. I have a better idea. And I pitched it to my editor, and he was like, okay. And I called Nike, and I was like, look, I, I have a different idea. And they're like, Casey, we've already agreed on this. We, we greenlit it. And I was like, it's a better idea. And I just remember, like, a big leap of faith from Alex Lopez, who's the executive there, who greenlit it. He was just kind of like, just don't fuck us here. Like, just don't, you know, I, I need you to deliver here. And I was like, I appreciate the trust. And um, You're like, see you later. I'll see you in 10 days. Yeah. And it was like, okay, let, let's figure this out. And the, the idea of the film was just to like, you know, to sort of show how people around the world make it count. And it ended up just being my friend and I exploring the world. Like the idea we had was just to show up at an airport, buy a plane ticket, go wherever it's going next, go to that city. When we got bored, buy a plane ticket, go wherever the next flight was taking us and just explore. And, um, you know, I think we captured that in the short video really, really well, this spirit of adventure and this idea of just sort of, you know, getting out there in life. Because you started the video by saying Nike gave us this budget and we said, you know what, we're going to take your money and travel around the world for 10 days or something like that. So had you had to communicate exactly what you're doing? Or no, they, they had no, they just, they just trust is, they, it was more of a, um, it was less trust. It was more of them kind of dismissing me like, oh, fuck this kid right. again. All right, he just well, lost money. Here. I just hope he doesn't, <laughs> hope he doesn't fuck us over here. Um, no, they were, they were super cool about it, but they didn't explicitly greenlight it because we didn't know what we were making. Yeah. We just knew we wanted to do something very different. And, and what was it, like a city a day you were in or one country It was way less structured than that. It was literally, we had a girl, Mary Beth, back in New York City who was just like, we'd text her and be like, we want to go here, find this. Can you get us out? We're freezing. Get us somewhere warm. <laughs> right. And she'd be like, I, you know, like there's a flight today. There's a flight in four hours. Like texting her at two in the morning being like, if you can be at the airport at 3 a.m., we can get you on this flight. And like, you've got this. And then like, you have a choice. You can have a layover in Nairobi or a layover in... in um, Sa- no, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and we're like, I, Nairobi maybe sounds safer. And like, it was, it was just that yeah. until like she called us and she's like, you know, like we're, we got like three grand left. And I was like, well, what's it to get us home? And she's like, you know, I think I can do it for 1800 bucks. And I was like, okay, great. We have $1,200 left. Like, let's go. That's all economy. Oh my God. It wasn't just economy. We were traveling <laughs> like on buses and camels. like it was, yeah, yeah, it was really, Pretty it amazing. was, it was not a big budget. I would say the budget for that entire video was probably what, Nike or any other company typically spends on craft services for, for right. their commercial shoots. But in the end, it really helped you because the video went viral. They obviously loved what you did. You, didn't you win awards for that too? Yeah, that movie did really well. That yeah. did, it was four minutes, but that did like wonders for my career. And I think what that really demonstrated was this, I, this way of advertising that wasn't just, you know, having somebody make your idea, but finding a real sort of symbiosis in between a client and a, and a creative individual. And, and that was the marriage between me and Nike. And for me personally, you know, the phone just kind of never stopped ringing um, with, with brands being like, hey, we want to do something like what you did with Nike. 
And that was great. Like I was finally able to build like a proper business out of that. And that's what I did for, you know, several years. And then you went on, you sold a business to CNN, you have your own creative agency now, and you've done so much. So tell me about like 2020, where you're at today. I mean, obviously, I know that I was watching an interview with you the other day, Case, where you, you definitely spoke about sort of the experiential podcast and where it's going. We, you were speaking about people that do things while they're, you know, the podcast medium and where it's going and that idea of doing things while there's like yeah. a conversation going on. Do you think that that's where it's heading in life? Do you think that's one of the, I mean, is that someplace that you'd focus on? Um, no, I'm, no, I, don't, I lack the patience for it. Um, I like to be locked in my um, studio alone with my editing, computer editing right. videos. Yeah, but no, I think that, I think that, you know, like I think somebody asked me what, what I thought the next big trend on YouTube would be and I think that it is some version of longer conversations where you get to really understand people and understand perspectives. And I think I referenced um, a couple of shows like Hot Ones. Yeah. Huge fan of that show. Yeah, great show. Huge fan. It's, I didn't bring the wings today, but I... Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's a, what Hot Ones is, is like if you remove the wings, which are Hot Ones is a show where, you know, there's a host and he interviews celebrities and it's it's 20 minutes long, but they're eating hot wings. So there's sort of this novel, this joke yeah. that's... But, um, the difference is they're profusely sweating and sweating. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're not doing that right but now. If, but if you were to uh, remove the hot wings from that show, what you're left with is just like a really amazing, insightful interview. Right, and I right. think that the hot wings are what makes it relatable for the viewer. And I think there's a number of shows that I see happening online right now on YouTube. And I think that I hope that that trend continues because yeah. it feels to me like there's, there's so much that can be taken from that. And it, it enables people to discuss things in a, in a way that... I think it's probably been uh, a little bit, um, uh, there's been a real lack of that on, on YouTube. YouTube's always been quick and flashy and fast, and this yeah. is a much more thoughtful thing. So, yeah, I think that that could be sort of a next big thing on the platform. And you recently moved to L.A., yeah. which is great, yeah. and you're with your family here. And your lifestyle now includes surfing, running, I know, getting ice cream with your daughter. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, so I, It's I, a much different thing than New York, you're right. Do you, do you enjoy it? I do. I mean, you know, I... I, my cup, my years with Owen, my older son, he's 21 now, but my years with him when he was young were really shitty. You know, we didn't have anything and yeah. we don't have anything. You can't even afford time. And we didn't get to spend, spend the time together that I wish we'd had, you know, it was always a couple days a week and we never were able to leave the house. We couldn't afford it. And I always sort of said that if I ever kind of found a kind of financial stability that I would, um, I would just hit the brakes and prioritize family and time for my family to be together over everything else. And um, this move from New York City to Los Angeles was like definitely about realizing just that. That's quality of life, right? I mean, I have to say, being a New Yorker, I kind of moved out here around the same time you did. I feel when did you moved out here two years ago, right? Uh, I was here in July, four or five oh, months okay. ago. Okay, sorry, for some yeah. reason I thought you moved out. So. I still prefer like New Yorkers as a whole. That's a generalization. I love. There's some great people in LA, but I know you have a lot of family out here. But I just feel like there's a realness, the flakiness thing. I never really get used to in LA. I don't know if it's acceptable to just not call people back, show up places. It's a weird thing. Like in New York, that never happened to me. Like I'd have ten meetings a day, and everybody would show up here. Maybe five do, and sometimes you know the car, the weather, the rain. I'm like, it's just rain. We've li you know, New York. We lived through tornadoes, hurricanes, whatever. I think there was once an earthquake when I was in New York, um, but it's a different lifestyle. I love the quality of life. I, I I am very much a New Yorker. As I said, we we definitely share some common friends. So I miss like my friends in New York. It's a different thing. I don't have my posse here the way I do in New York, and I know you have a lot of family out here. So for you, you might have fallen into it right away, and you might love it. Um. 
Yeah, look, I was ready. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, New York was a central character in my daily YouTube show. Exactly. 800 episodes of it. New York was the star of that show. And, you know, New York to me was something that I'd romanticized my entire life. Like when I was that little kid living in Connecticut, um, living with my parents, like New York was this emerald city that was two and a half hours to the west and I only ever wanted to live there. And um, uh, none of that's lost on me. And I think that I don't, I don't miss New York at all, but I miss, I miss being a New Yorker so much that it keeps me up at night. Yeah, like can you miss like walking? Well, I guess you can walk in Venice, but it's no, not Look, really I don't miss any of the bullshit of New York, <laughs> like for all the romance, <laughs> the like the, it's, that, that place is a fucking war zone <laughs> right. and it's very hard to live there. But I love that. It yeah. was like, um, you know, I, I say to my wife that like New York is, it's such a battle to survive there yeah. that there's this. Darwinism that weeds out the weak and you're just surrounded by people who are in the fight with you and exactly. that yields a sense of camaraderie and but everything I'm describing to you right now Scott this is all the romance of New York <laughs> yeah it's yeah. all the romance and and how that romance kind of manifests day to day is like living in a small apartment with my two babies yeah. and my wife and yeah. like it's difficult to like bundle the kids up to get outside and you don't get a yard you don't get a you don't get space. You don't get to Definitely breathe. Not. Like you don't get to, like you know, we we do Shabbat every Friday night. My yeah. family, extended family, all show up at my house, yeah, and like great. it's amazing. We didn't get to do that. You don't get to do any yeah. of that stuff in New York. So, um, I do miss it. I'll forever miss it. I miss it the way you would miss that 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 relationship you had, the one that got away, and right, you right, wish you exactly. had married and you didn't. And it's probably for the best. It was definitely for the best. But you never stop thinking about that individual. Like for me, that individual is New York City and it always will be. But you go back there a bunch anyway, right? Scott, you're a New Yorker. You're not a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah. I am not a New Yorker anymore. Oh, right. Okay. So, so right. it doesn't so matter how right. often I visit. Yeah, I'm yeah. there now as a, as a fucking tourist, <laughs> right. you know? So, you're, so for 2020 case, you have, uh, you're doing a, a documentary on YouTube, I think, right? Which is incredible. Yeah, yeah. I'm working on a big feature right now. I've been working on it for about nine months. And you still have the creative agency. Yeah, and still, still making YouTube videos. Posted yeah. one this morning, and um, doing as much as I can. You know, like my, I owe everything to my YouTube audience, and so long as they want to watch these silly videos that I make, I'm, I'm psyched to keep making them. So the million dollar question, and something I always wanted to ask you, and I'm glad you're sitting here because I think everyone needs to know this. Like, what is the trick or key to having something go viral? Because you've had so many things go viral, and it's not easy. People can put up videos all day long, but you have that special sauce. I know it's not easy to explain that. But there's got to be something in it that for you, you're like, you know what? I feel like if you do these things, this could possibly go viral. I mean, I think I think the biggest key to making something go viral is uh, zeitgeist. And I'm not good at it now because I'm not paying attention. I was good at it years ago because I was really paying attention. But that iPod video is great video, sure. But it also came out at peak iPod, like, peak attention for the iPod. Right, if you remember right. then, like, that was when they had that huge ad campaign. That's when everybody was talking about it. Everybody wanted it. The most desirable product in the world at the time. Yeah. And then here's this video that, rightly so, gives it a hard hard critique. And, you know, the bike lanes video was, like, you know, at a time when, like, that was, you know, top of mind for so many people. And, you know, being sort of pushed around by the man and being able to speak up to him in a way that felt both thoughtful and... and Correct, you know, like that tapped into a zeitgeist, and I think make it count. The Nike video was like at a time when people were kind of frustrated. I remember, like Mark Parker, the CEO of Nike, said that he was sitting in his office and he heard the video playing, and he went to his receptionist and said, "What is this?" And he made her play it back, and he watched that and he said, "Shit, I need to get out more." 
Right. Exactly, you know, and yeah. it's it's like I think that that was the time for that. So, um, you know, I think of like the last viral video I saw yesterday was, you know, YouTube comes out every year with this video called Rewind, which is like a the last year on Greatest YouTube, hits. here's what happened. Yeah. yeah. And this year, like every year, nobody likes their Rewind. So this kid like made his own version of it. Mm. Uh, I'm assuming he's a kid. I don't know who he is. I've never met him. It was fucking great. It was mm. fucking great. And it was I found like his greatest hits. No, he was all of YouTube. He made it as if he was YouTube. Oh, okay. Amazing. And it was brilliant. Oh. It was way better than the one that YouTube itself actually made. It was so smart. It made you cry. It made you laugh. Were and you I, in there? Um, yeah, I had like a second. Yeah, sure. Cool. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, hundreds of YouTubers are in it. Yeah. And it was so well done. And it, it's been seen like, I don't know what the number is, six, seven million views, but this creator only has a couple thousand subscribers. Mm. So that's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. That's that amazing. is a viral video. Definitely. And he released it, I think, the day after YouTube released there. So that is anticipating that there's going to be all of this curiosity around Rewind. That's the zeitgeist. And then making a video that delivers on that. So he captured, he made, did the video part, which is a lot of people do that. And then he nailed the zeitgeist, which is a much harder thing to do. So it's really being topical and finding what everyone's on the tip of everyone's lips, like what, they, what are they talking about and obviously timing with all that, right? Yeah, that's, that's, kind of what it, that's number one and two of like a 500-step process right, right, to yeah, make something Right, but the basic building blocks, right? Those, that's, those are the, if you don't have those two things, you don't stand a chance. Yeah, it's funny because when I watched your Nike video, I was like, shit, I got to get out and do more <laughs> stuff. I mean, I'm like, I do a lot of stuff. And my friends are always like, how are you so active? And then I'm looking at Casey. He's in Egypt on Monday. He's in <laughs> Abu Dhabi on Tuesday. I was He's in Abu Dhabi in, on Tuesday. Yeah, Singapore on Wednesday. I'm like, I'm not doing anything. Like, And you're literally like jogging or running through like all those countries, right? Yeah, big Part runner. Of, yeah, so big runner. You were doing a lot of that. So 2020, anything else we should... Obviously, everyone follow Casey. Check out all his amazing projects. YouTube, Instagram. What other projects can we talk about for 2020 for you? That's kind of it. Uh, maybe you'll see me at the beach with my kids. Yeah, which which is a whole other thing, right? <laughs> it's the best family thing. Man. The best thing. Yeah, but I should preface the LA New York conversation by the way, but say if you have a family and you live out here, it's probably amazing. So me, like the single guy in LA, it's weird. I think I like New York better. But as a, as a family man, I think... As a family uh, man, it's wonderful. Also, yeah. for, for what it's worth, my older son, the kid I had when I was, when I was uh, 17, he goes to college in uh, San Francisco. So being two hours from him on a plane ride and a, in an Uber, it's magical. Definitely. He comes down all the time. It's wonderful. He's such a great kid. So that's a big part of it for me, Scott. Hey, guys. Thanks for tuning in. It's been a pleasure, Case. Man, just great hanging out with you. It's been way overdue for many, many years. We've known each other from afar, but this is the first time we got to actually hang out and, and have a, a real great conversation. So this is great. Thanks for coming Appreciate out. you having me. Thank you, my brother. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, guys. The show today was brought to you semi-live from WeWork. And it's brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boots. At Thursday's Boots, for those of you who don't know, Thursday's Boot Company is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry, which is incredible. More importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. These are my favorite boots. I wear them all the time. As you guys know, you can always see me rocking at Thursday's Boots. Check out their IG page. Check them out. Go buy a pair. You'll love them and let me know what you think. And uh, this was a real pleasure having Casey on the show today. The season is ending fairly soon. We'll be back to you come January. Make sure you guys have a great holiday. Be safe. And I shall talk to you guys soon. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jingle Jared 
In my former occupation, I was the biggest jingle writer of all time. Now, I'm looking for a new job, speaking to every entrepreneur that I can find so I can find out what it's like to transition from one career to another. All of this expert advice has become the bedrock for a podcast I'm calling Occupational Therapy. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hey there. Hey, Dennis Quaid is here. That's right. And guess what? I have a podcast. It's called The Denaissance, and I think you should listen. I'm having some really cool conversations with some really interesting people like music legend Billy Ray Cyrus, housewife of Beverly Hills, Garcelle Bouvet, and many, many more. Listen to The Denaissance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. y'all i'm uncle drank star of the ballad of uncle drank it is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me fictional golf and western country music pioneer uncle drank the series also stars luke wilson brian kelly chelsea lynn kinky friedman and billy zane as a talking blender named blendy you can find the ballad of uncle drank on sirius xm pandora stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts 